Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and welcome to the second of three episodes recorded during Adobe Maker in Sydney. I work with Adobe, so I wasn't actually involved in the conversation. So we had our good friend Ian Hay from Ketchup as a guest host. So thanks to Ian and Adobe for helping make these episodes happen. We couldn't have done it without either of you. In this episode, we spoke with Kitia Palaskis, craft-based designer from Melbourne, who spoke on the main stage at Adobe Make It. Kitty has been on our list for some time, so we're really excited to finally be able to welcome her on ADR. This episode was recorded backstage at Adobe Make It, and we'll drop you into that conversation right now. Tell us more about this radio station that you used to do. Okay, so I there was this drive, I guess, to have new shows, and there wasn't really any anything at the time. This was maybe about six, seven years ago. There wasn't anything at the time that was about, there were arts shows, but not necessarily shows about creative entrepreneurs. And that's what I was really interested in. Mm. So I pitched a show to just interview. It was mainly people in the sort of handmade scene at the time, because that's kind of what I was most familiar in, but we did end up getting other sort of creative entrepreneurs in to talk about their businesses and or their ventures. So they got to choose a few songs that like either they really love or that they listen to when they're to working or so cool. I love that kind of like yeah. make a mixtape type desert island disc yes yeah. totally like, um, out of the box on FBI yeah. 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 yeah yeah I did that I actually did that once and it was oh, really cool. fun cool. yeah um, so they got to choose a couple of songs that were le- related in some way to their making yeah and then we talked about whatever their venture was and like asked I asked them for tips about you know, um, business and like what they've learned and things like that. So it was very quite short, but it was quite intimidating because I am really bad at splitting my brain between two different things like that at the same time, especially when it's, I think mainly when it's technical right. and when you're live, there's that pressure. Yeah. That's, dead, dead air. Yeah. And of. that's like the most, they, they kept saying during the training, they kept telling us about it and how bad it was and you know, how, if it, if it, how <laughs> so you know, like, freaked out before. yeah, like how five <laughs> seconds is actually sounds like an hour to a person listening. And it's yeah. so true. Like, have you ever had those instances where you listen to a radio show and then someone messes up like that and it just, you just like go, ooh, yeah, yeah. someone did something wrong. So I was in a lot <laughs> yeah, of fear yeah. about that. Um, but I eventually got the hang of it. Yeah, it was really And fun. you actually got training. Ian hasn't had any training at <laughs> yeah, all. Yeah, so pressure's on me. <laughs> Gave me the microphone and said, go. Um, how did you find the uh, community? Like, is, was there a crafty community that you just asked people that you know from around the traps? Or how, how did you? Um, I did. Well, I, at the time I was... Um, it sounds kind of weird describing it, but there used to be this thing on Etsy, so the handmade marketplace, called Etsy Teams. And I think they might have ab- absorbed the, that into a different kind of structure now, but at the time you could have a voluntary team that created events and provided opportunities for local Etsy sellers in your area to meet up. So whether that just be like a coffee meetup or you could get sort of help from Etsy the organization mm. to run a market we did a couple of those or host a you know panel night or a speaking event or something so that things to just encourage the makers to get together and form a community so i was like what is called the team captain like it just sort of sounds yeah the etsy team captain sounds kind of like a, some kind of pirate type situation had, had uniforms yeah i wore a hat and had like a parrot and an eye patch yeah. and a peg leg that i wore when i needed to like exert my officialness over other people um no but it was yeah so um through that i actually met a lot of the local etsy community so i kind of pulled from that but then my friend group was all 
creative people um, in Sydney doing lots of different things, so working in different indus industries like music or advertising and things like that. So I, I kind of had a big group to, to pull from. And at the beginning, I did get a lot of my friends because I knew I'd be comfortable with them mm. chatting yep. in a situation and not nervous. So I thought that's a good way to start. Yeah. And then I started sort of getting other people. I think that's a great way to start. I mean, that's how we started. Just It, it enables you to make those mistakes in a friendly, safe environment. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and you just don't feel intimidated trying to... Because I've done other things before. Like I did this sort of interview show with Warner Music where I had to interview bands, but it was like they came onto my set. It was called Craft with Kit. Was so like, I wanted to ask about Oh, that. Yeah. yeah. So it was like um, Art Attack was the yeah. main inspo for my Because for Because you've, you've said that you can't do two things at once, but that was very much two things at but once. But luckily it wasn't sort of technical like right. to do with machinery. It was just me just crafting. But that was very intimidating because there'd be this whole band would come in and they'd be either jet lagged or hungover or something <laughs> and um, they'd walk into this little room in the Warner offices that we turned into this set and I'd just be sitting there with this like as you can imagine just colourful crazy craft Scissors. stuff everywhere and they'd just be like what is this because we deliberately didn't tell them exactly what to expect because we wanted Brilliant. the whole vibe to be quite weird yeah. and it was filmed on VHS so we wanted that kind of quirky like sort of slightly off <laughs> awkward thing and so I'm quite awkward in general anyway with when I meet a group of people that already all know each other yeah okay yeah it's well, like and they yeah. have all their in jokes and things like that and so you're trying to facilitate these questions and um be a host and stuff but at the same time you're just like it's just so awkward and weird and we're sitting on these little baby chairs like little kids school chairs so we're really low on the ground and the whole thing is just so funny so yeah I um that was more difficult would you ever do that again because i I've told people about that and, and they're just like, I would watch that. I think it's so, like the premise of it is still open. Yeah. The guy that I was doing it with from Warner left. So I'd have to sort of re renegotiate like the relationship there and how we were going to do it this time. But I found it really intimidating. But that was before I started doing a lot of public speaking, which yep. I now have done. And I think that doing that has made me more comfortable yeah. talking to strangers. Like mm -hmm. I think at the time... I was still a bit shy and like I, I was very uncomfortable and so, and I also didn't. I think it's different when it's video. I don't know if you guys have ever been on video. Like, it looks you just look at yourself and it's quite like I never watch any of my videos of public speaking things because yeah. I just. But you, yeah. you aren't you your own worst critic though as well. Yeah, like, I me yeah. especially I am like the most critic. ultimate self critic ever. So yeah, yeah, I I always just was like, oh, that's the worst angle. Or like, why did I put my arm like down? It looks fat. Like I just all this stuff. <laughs> but I think I would probably be able to let that go now. So yeah, I'd love to do it. Long story short, love the, to do the it. The one I, I remember uh, most was the Lily Allen one, which is probably... Oh yeah, my Lily Allen work. Yeah. yeah. When bands or artists sell a lot of records, they get those sort of plaques that have yeah. the record in them saying you've done this many sales or whatever yeah. um so they asked me to create one but out of felt like a mm -hmm. felt collage something a bit different because Lily Allen's quite unique in the way she her sort of brand is fun and playful mm. and a lot of her props and costumes and things are pretty like out there so yeah they wanted to create something unique for her that wasn't just your standard plaque so mm. they asked me but a really funny thing I don't know actually this is probably bad but maybe they won't listen to this so um, maybe <laughs> she <laughs> Lily Allen if you're listening I'm really sorry um, so when I was delivering it I was rushing to get it there because they needed to go give it to her and so I went to the office and as I was just about to walk in it 
like part of the frame kind of broke. And so I'm standing in the street with this like artwork that I've slaved away on for like days that's going to be delivered to like the queen of pop music. And I'm just like trying to like fiddling around trying to like put the back of the frame back on because it had popped out. And I slashed my hand on like one of the little bendy bits that keeps the frame in place and then just started bleeding on this artwork. (laughs) But luckily it was on the back. So I was like, I don't know what to do in this instance because I'm like trying to hold it up so it doesn't go on the ground, but also stop the bleeding, but also get the frame back on. And then I managed to kind of do it, but then all throughout the back of the artwork, I like droplets of my blood. Whoa. <laughs> so if she ever gets it reframed, she'll be like, whoa, that's She creepy. really puts herself into the artwork. Yeah, yeah it's kind of, like, I feel like it's like verging on stalker territory there, <laughs> just being like, I bled for you on this artwork. It's, yeah, she should hear this story. I think if anyone would understand and appreciate that story, Lily Allen would. Hopefully. Definitely. <laughs> but I just feel like my whole career is just like a series of hilarious like mishap type situation <laughs> stories that happen to be when I'm like trying to be a professional artist. Let's talk about your career though because you've got a unique because your brand is your name. Yes. Does that ever cause issue? Um, I think for the most part it's good because I know I'm quite indecisive and if I ha- did have a a name for my business or something like that <laughs> I would change. probably get bored and I'd have to <laughs> rebrand constantly. So I think the strongest brand that you can have is your name because then it allows you to shift and change as you do as a person without needing to do some big name change or something but on the other hand I do find it difficult sometimes to separate personal self from my brand self even though it is pretty much the same anyway Mm. but like I I have a sort of uncomfortable relationship with social media and I don't necessarily always feel comfortable using it because it's a big time suck like I kind of and it can be, you can get quite obsessed with it and yeah. it sort of becomes a be all and end all. Sometimes you get in this there's, vortex. There's people out there who do it so well and then. And you just can compare yourself to others. It's just yeah. very, it's just a weird <laughs> landscape that I never thought would ever sort of occur, but has. And inevitably we can't not use it because that's the way that is the easiest and cheapest mm. for self made people like me to promote ourselves these days. And there's no denying. Instagram, for example, has been integral to the growth of my brand. But sometimes I just want to like not have my name be out there. And one time I actually got like internet stalked when I was in my early 20s. So it's it's a sense of uncomfortableness a little bit sometimes just being like I am Googleable, but then I'm like I have to be because I have a necessary evil. What was that internet stalking all about? How did that? Well, I just it was that it was really weird. It was just like this forum. You know, like there, there was this blog and it was called like badlydressedpeople.com or something like that. And a picture of me showed up on there. Right? I, I, I'll probably be on there as well. So. Yeah. Well, I thought I looked really cute. It was this, um, it was just like a photo from a Facebook or something. And someone alerted me to it on Facebook. Like I saw your picture on this blog. And oh, no. So the long story short, like all these comments started happening. Like, I don't think this girl belongs on here because she's not actually badly dressed and all this stuff. And then whoever had put it there started these personal attacks and it just escalated and all my friends got involved and they knew them too and it escalated as well and um, it went on for like two, three weeks and it was really sort of, as you can imagine, like terrifying and like just violating and I never found out who it was. I was eventually able to get the photo taken down because my friend could prove that um, she took it and she didn't give permission for it to be used. Right, okay. 
But yeah, so after that, I was like, oh God, social media is just <laughs> yes, such a scary place to be. It's messed up. I mean, and that was through no fault of your own, right? Well, you were I just might an innocent done, bystander. I, well, I mean, I thought I was innocent, but maybe I've done something to someone. Uh, and they, <laughs> if you're listening, I'm real sorry. Like, <laughs> please don't stalk me again. Yeah. What do you call yourself now? Because you've called yourself in the past like a, a prop maker, stylist. Um, I think when we've talked before, you, you talked about this craft-based designer, which yeah. I thought was a really good term. Um, well, I have been calling myself a craft-based designer up to this point because that is basically what I do. I My output sits within the design world more so than in the craft world, I yep. think, in terms of my clients being com very commercial design sort of clients. But the output, the actual methods are based in craft. So that's why I kind of created that term. However, um, I've been thinking about it lately and sort of in the in the way of thinking about like for example SEO for a brand I don't think that when people are searching for someone to create a prop for a shoot that they're going to search craft based designer that's a good point they're probably going to search prop maker or something yeah. like that and you know I do um I kind of I'm trying to shift a little bit into a more sort of curatorial realm because that's sort of where my interests are at the moment so more into more styling work more art direction work mm -hmm. um, as well as making and so for that reason i think i need to be using like terminology in the way that i brand myself and market myself so is, that i can be found better is, and is a large part of your work through people literally just finding you or, or... um I, I think i would say a large portion is from uh knowing my work and wanting me as as the designer to work on something but then there is a, a hefty chunk that is just like oh i was i was searching for you know like someone that could make you know giant I don't know, like pinata, and I came across your work, but they would have been searching pinata. They wouldn't have been searching craft-based designer. Yep. So I think because I'm so niche, I'm constantly having to think of new ways to be found mm -hmm. because it's not as wide, like widely known that you can have, you know, handmade elements in artwork, obvious in campaigns. But obviously, it's more common these days. We've had this big handmade revival in design, but as a very niche person, in order to get myself in front of people, I need to make myself easy to be found so now I think I I'm trying to call myself a sort of series of words that describe what I do so at the moment especially like for this conference for example it's like prop maker stylist artist mm -hmm. that kind of encompasses basically <laughs> everything but then yeah. in the sort of descriptive line I'll say using craft-based techniques so I can still get that in there mm -hmm. but I think yeah craft-based designer is something that maybe is not benefiting me as much as I think it should yeah. you've got an amazing piece on your website where you kind of explain how to work with you and yeah like I an hope. FAQ section yeah, yeah I really love that it's awesome I just felt the need to do that for this reason because I think a lot of people it's hard to pigeonhole me like to label me because mm. I I do quite a lot of different types of things within a sort of craft-based context because I'm getting hired for things that maybe like a a graphic designer or like an illustrator or something might get hired for right. but I'm getting hired instead because they want a handmade element but then the approach to handmade like actual making is very different from designing on a computer and you know it involves often a lot a lot more time because you know you're hand making things uh, in terms of you know uh, like prototyping and sampling and sketching and things like that the process is different because you actually have to make mock-ups so therefore there's Sometimes there's a little bit of a, I guess, not misunderstanding, but just lack of education about how much, what to expect from me and like how long it's going to take me to do something. And therefore, in, 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 like in, 
conjunction with that, like how much it's going to cost, why I price things the way I do. And yeah. so that's why I made that FAQ because sometimes people just go, oh, look, I looked at your Instagram. This is so colorful and you do all this stuff. But like, what is it that you actually do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought it might help before do, do, they come to me for them to see this like question. Do everything. they, do you think that they read it? Do you think it has helped? I hope so. Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> no one seems to be asking like those sorts of questions. Like in ever since I put that up, yeah. I feel like people are coming to me with a, a bit more of an education about mm. why what I'm doing. So maybe they've read it, but I actually should ask them at the end. I, I don't really do that thing where you kind of ask for client feedback at the end. You, you've done a really nice job with the language you've used as well, which um, subtly says, I love what I do, but I want to be paid for it as well. Yeah, <laughs> well, I feel very strongly about that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are talking more openly about things like that now, like knowing your worth and... I think I just kind of feel very protective over what I've created. And as you get older or more experienced within the industry, I feel like you just don't have time for that, for just having to like, it's tiring having to be like, no, but I am like, I am worth something. Like this mm. is how much I, you don't, I don't like want to, want to justify why I should be paid yep. anymore. Like I feel like maybe at the beginning I, I would be a bit more flexible or maybe let stuff slide, but now. I, I'm pretty sure like this is what I want to do for my life and I need to just be paid properly, please. Yeah. There's this weird yeah. kind of perception that if you enjoy your job, then you should just do it for free or something. It's, it's I know, a lot yeah. of creative people. Like, you wouldn't go to an accountant and say, hey, you seem to enjoy doing this. Can you do my taxes for me? Yeah. For free. I know. It's crazy. Like what I often say, would you go into Coles and be like, like a supermarket and be like, hey, so, you know, I've got 20 point like 22,000 followers on Instagram and like all my friends love what you do yeah. um how about like you know if I just told my followers all about your products or if I just told my mates about your products can I get this like trolley load of groceries yeah. for free so like you know 22,000 followers is equivalent to you know maybe like ten thousand dollars worth in worth of supermarket value so um like can i just, yeah. yeah it's just so as if they just be like leave yeah. so why <laughs> is it okay then to kind of you know this is always my argument like why is it okay then to assume i'm i'm like that you can negotiate what i'm telling you i'm yeah. worth yeah. Yeah. yeah obviously i don't like rant about it in that process but that's why things like educating mm. um, a client or a potential client on the whole background of what might go into a project for me will help them to understand without there being that awkward conversation about just getting it out there early as well I yeah guess. It's just... and without having to be like awkward and be like talk about figures and stuff because once you start chatting about money it's quite uncomfortable for me yeah so I feel like if I do a lot of pre-education and provide many opportunities for people to understand what I do more they won't need to ask those questions yeah now you love educating as well don't you yes you've done lots and lots of workshops there was one that I was looking at which had something like 20 different workshops you were, you were running and, and in within a year, I think it was, um, in 2014, I think it was. But where does that come from? Because you, you clearly really love kind of teaching, teaching the craft. Um, well, I think, well, first of all, my parents always told me that I should be a teacher and just art should be a thing that I did on the side. Right. And I was always like, you don't know me, like, you don't understand, this is not what I'm going to do. And now look at me, like 10 years later, I'm just exactly do, what I'm, I'm doing. I'm do the opposite. <laughs> I am teaching all the time. Um, but I think in the craft world, community making has always been a really big element of, you know, and skill sharing, passing on knowledge and things like that yeah. has been a huge part of the handmade culture 
throughout time. So there'll always be instances when you look back on history, the history of craft of groups getting together to create things, whether that be practical items to be used in their village, for example, or, you know, decorative pieces. Like mm. you, you hear stories of communities getting together to make a big quilt or something like that. So mm. that's always been part of it. And I think it's really important to uphold that sort of ethos or that culture. Um, because I am a handmade artist, I want to kind of make sure I can still do that. And I really mm. believe strongly in skill sharing. And I've realized I've, I really like to empower other aspiring creative people to be, get hands on and actually be creative themselves and like just explore it mm. and just play. A lot of adults especially don't just play with craft stuff anymore. Like they may have kids, they may do stuff with their kids, but they don't actually ever indulge in making for themselves mm. because life just takes over and unless yep. you've got a reason to, you're not going to just do it. But it's actually, it can be quite meditative and mm. it can be quite like playing, like learning how to play again is very um, liberating, I think, for your brain and like, yeah. But I think in terms of how I got started with it, I just got asked by a friend. I was traveling to America. Uh, I'd met her. She'd come and exchanged to my art school and um, she was now working for Etsy and I was traveling over there and she just asked if I wanted to come host a craft workshop at this weekly craft night they did at their headquarters in New York. And I'd never taught anything before, so I was pretty intimidated by it, but I loved everything about Etsy. And at the time I wanted to work there. So I was like, I'll do anything to like, <laughs> I want to see where you work. Like, oh my God, that's amazing. So I went and hosted this like felt cake making workshop with this group of really interesting people of all different ages, all different yeah. demographics, men and women, kids. And I actually realized through that, that I loved, I actually loved the teaching aspect of it. Mm. And it was very rewarding to me. And I think what teaching does for me is it takes me out of my bubble and allows me to interact with my community face to face. And um, it makes it less about me because I think yep. it can be quite easy as a designer to get wrapped up in like a sort of ego driven sort of space uh, because naturally you are just your work and it's personal and especially if it's your brand is your name and all that stuff. Mm. So that, this just allows me to get perspective and just share skills with others and see how other people interpret my briefs that I give them. And, yeah, I just really like I, it. I love that kind of thing where you, you you feel like you've written something down and you've given something and they go, oh, what about this? And you're like, oh, I never even thought about that. Exa yeah, it's very – and sometimes you're like, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, yeah. Like I did this felt pennant workshop um, at this Agda event in Tasmania recently and some of the things that these people were making, I was like, oh. <laughs> okay, well, I'm just going to start making felt pennants because you are amazing. It was so inspiring. They were just like killing it, making these incredible things. And you just thought that you had like, I was just like, no, nah, I've exhausted all the like possibilities of felt. But then someone else with a different yep. point of view comes along and creates this thing you'd never imagined before. It's really cool. So other than that collaboration, the skill sharing and bouncing ideas between people, are there other avenues where you learn new skills like internationally or are there other forums or places where you can skill up and, and get into new areas? Um, I actually do actively pursue further education in creative things to build my skill set. So I, um, I like to do things that I don't post on Instagram that I know are just for me. So there's no, um, what's the word, like feeling that I have to be excellent at it mm. or that it has to be aesthetically pleasing. So I did like a ceramics course just to learn a, a new medium. Um, I had a friend of mine uh, like try and try 
and teach me um, a bit of carpentry skills because I, I think that will come in really handy with my prop making mm. to be able to add, like to build things that need a more firm structure. Um, and yeah, I do a lot of like online courses for things. Mm. I do a lot of like marketing. I'm like really obsessed with really? self-marketing. I just find it fascinating and so interesting. Yeah. So I do a lot of that kind of thing as well. Like even stuff that I think that I don't necessarily need because I, I kind of have learned how to do it myself. Things like Instagram, how to like market on Instagram, for example. I just find it interesting to hear other people's point of views mm. and I just suck knowledge up and I read a lot of like books yeah. as well. Are you yeah. going to do anything with the ceramics? Because I imagine your work would look amazing in ceramics. I actually would love to. So I've started making a few little um, like just silly, ridiculous like sculptures and they're like goth themed. So they're like like a witch's hat and like a Ouija board and like all this kind of stuff just out of clay, um, yeah. like air dry clay and then painting it. And I'm enjoying that because I'm, I don't, haven't done a lot of painting. Like I'd paint a set piece, for example, but mm. I wouldn't necessarily paint a detailed picture because it doesn't feel like my strong point so I'm enjoying like learning how to use a paintbrush for example yeah and this is a throwback to your your goth days uh, so yeah. I did want to ask you because <laughs> I was a goth as well oh my god goths unite <laughs> yes what about you were you one I was not a goth it's not I wasn't too cool late enough missed to be out. A goth. look it's not too late a goth dad is that a thing goth. yeah wow. oh my gosh I you actually have the perfect well, you YouTube video to that. send you of a goth dad playing with his goth child <laughs> They make a cathedral out of paddle pop sticks, like popsicle sticks, and then they cover it in kerosene and burn it. Oh, that's wow. I'm going to send it to you. Yeah, yeah, please. They're both dressed in full goth attire. <laughs> it's just amazing. So how, how goth were you? Did you go the white face paint? or? Well, okay, look, I need to give some context here. I lived in the United <laughs> Arab Emirates when I was a goth, so that's like... Wow. Like average temperatures of around 40, 30 to 40 <laughs> degrees with like 98% humidity. So commitment. there was a limit to the amount of makeup I could actually yeah. wear. So white face paint did not come into it. I wanted, I was proud about being an ethnic goth as well. So like, I, I was like, I'm just going to stay brown. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's a way, like, you don't really see that many ethnic goths. So I was like, yeah, represent. Yeah. But I, yeah, I was full into decked out in black clothing. I'd make like fairy wings or like angel wings that had black feathers on them and wear them to school. Uh, I made like voodoo dolls of girls that bullied me at school and oh, wow. <laughs> uh, listened to like Cradle of Filth and like other um, death metal bands in my room really loud and was probably just a very annoying person to live with. <laughs> Had many feelings, cried a lot, like right in my diary. Yeah. Is the UAE a kind of, is it easier or more difficult to be a goth in other countries or is? Um, well, there's just like at that time, I mean, maybe, maybe it's different now, but to be honest, I haven't been back since I graduated, but um, it was a bit devoid of like subculture for teenagers mm. or subculture. You kind of got fed a lot of, I went to an American international school. So you got a lot of like Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears type culture come in. Not that they're bad. I love them. But um, <laughs> like you didn't like, it was harder to learn about subcultures and there weren't that many people. Like I think there were maybe like three other metalheads at my school. Right. And there were no other kind of full goths. So it was hard to find a tribe. So if you wanted to, it felt quite isolating. Like you felt like you were just making a statement and holding this torch for yourself because there wasn't really a world for you to be in. Like there weren't any shops like you could go to to buy goth clothes or there was like music stores didn't necessarily have, you know, like a metal section per yeah. se or like, yeah. So, so music and I mean, was the internet? I used to um, go on a lot of like chat rooms and forums like death metal forums and yeah. stuff like that and i would like wake up in the middle of the night because that's when everyone in the northern hemisphere like would be 
or in like other places would be awake and I'd sneak out and like put a pillow over the modem because it's dial up. Right. <laughs> so that my parents didn't hear that like noise of the modem and then I just like spend the night um, file sharing with these other goths across the world. They, you know, but it would take a whole night to, to send one MP3. Yeah. So one song. But so that's why it was so like every time I got the song, I just thrashed it. I played it like 50 million times yeah. and I just, it was like a little gem. It was like a prize yeah. because it was so hard to source stuff. Uh, it, it makes so it unique. so much more valuable, doesn't it? Everything. Yeah. So with Spotify now, everything's quite disposable because you can listen to half a song and then just like, nah, next. Totally. And I do that all the time now. But I just remember like I had maybe like it was a handful of songs in my arsenal, but that took like five months to source. And yeah, music was always a, like music was directly linked to like the subculture that I then sort of started dressing as and or like making mm. art about and stuff like that. Yeah. Is music uh, a way that you relax? Because I guess I'm quite interested. A lot of what you do for a job, people might do. You even said yourself it's quite meditative. They do it to kind of relax. So what do you do to relax? Um, well, I do a lot of meditation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think it's really important for my brain because I'm quite a, I said before, I'm quite self-critical so I can get into a bit of a like vortex of thoughts about my work or myself. And I've had uh, like a few stints, obviously working, I had a day job, but there's been some large chunks of time where I've worked full freelance. And so that in itself has been something that I've needed to like make sure I have mind space to get away from yeah so i do that um i love nature stuff so i will always just go i love like water so being in water like in the ocean or even just like if i can't go to the ocean just having a shower or something mm. is like i just feel cleansed or something like that i don't know a lot of people say that about the ocean there's some or water bodies of water so there's something about it i'm um, swimming i do um but then also like just vegetating mm -hmm. is really important <laughs> but sometimes i just really need to watch like a trashy TV show, Laura <laughs> being my favorite one, um, or do a project like work on something like a personal project that's just for me that doesn't have any end expectation and, mm -hmm. or any monetary figure attached to it. So I can just get back to that play thing that I was talking about before. Right. It's really important. Yeah. But music does really influence me. Like if I want to really relax, I listen to classical music, mm -hmm. but it ha can't have any like voice, just sort of yeah. like there's this playlist that I have from Spotify that's like melancholy piano music mm. and that's just it. really good and when <laughs> yeah. I'm writing things like uh, when I was writing my book which I've got coming out or when I was writing my talk for this conference that was really good to have on because it calmed my mind mm -hmm. but I could still think about words to write let's talk about your book yeah so it's a book oh my god <laughs> um it's a piñata DIY craft book so I've wanted to write a book since I was about 11 and I actually wrote most of a full science fiction novel. Oh, really? I wanted to be the first girl under 13 to publish a science fiction novel in the world. That never really came to pass because um, I guess I just became 13 and I was like, <laughs> I like, I love Hanson or like whatever it was at the time that I was obsessed with and like that just got forgotten. So yeah, this is really exciting because it's like a definite bucket list thing. And it's just 30 piñata projects. They, like Some are actual piñatas and some are piñata-related projects. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's really colourful, as you can imagine. And I art-directed it, so that, that was like my first big art-directing kind of project, which I loved. I, like, I don't know if you've ever done something where you, you try something new and then you just, it just is really easy and seems like really natural and you just realise this is, I was actually like born to do this. Yeah. This is 
like you just feel yourself just everything clicking, everything you don't even need to like second guess your decisions or um, wonder if you've done the right thing or anything. It just is like second nature. That sounds wonderful. It was, I've never <laughs> felt that before. Like I've always had uncertainty. I've never felt <laughs> I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> is it about being a goth? You're like, this is what I was born to do. I'm going to be a goth podcaster. Yes. Goth the, first, the first one, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, I, when I was doing this, like working with my photographer and styling the whole thing and just, you know, cur curating the whole concept overall of what, what it was going to look like and what the pictures each shot was going to look like and everything. And then no, and then relating that to you know what I wanted the book to look like. I just lo like it was amazing. Mm -hmm. I've never felt so empowered. I was just like, I think this is what I meant to it was do. It's interesting. I think it was looking on Booktopia, and they had like a description, and they I could see they were sort of struggling how to kind of um, pigeonhole it as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think it said something like uh, in her signature style. So, it, do you like having a signature style? Because I imagine that's probably not something you sit down and think about too much. I've realized that I kind of do have one because people will always be like, oh, I saw this thing so new it was you before I even like right. saw that it was you. And I'm like, really? Oh, okay, cool. That's good. Well, that's good that I can be recognized. It's important. Yep. I think I have actually developed a sort of signature style for this sort of brand capsule that um, I have now. But then I do, I did an exhibition last year that was like full it was about like goth stuff and like magic and right. all this stuff. And that was, even though aesthetically, like the way it looked, like the way the shapes were shaped and all that kind of stuff was still Kitty Pulaska's. The subject matter was just so far from, it, it seemed like it might've been a different person, even though you could see similarities mm. in the techniques. So I think it's kind of difficult because I can't just have a goth show as like Kitty Pulaska's the brand. I have to kind of explain to people like, oh, like I used to actually used to be a goth, you know, and yeah. I do like, I still like all this stuff, even though you may not see this kind of subject matter come up often. So mm. this is my show about it. It's kind of, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe, it, I don't know. I've shot myself in the foot here, but I think no, inevitably I think, people I, I think it, I do. Think, I think your signature style is that you kind of change a lot. And I think, you know, I've, I bought, um, some badges for my for my kids and they wear them to school. And, oh, do and, they? Yeah, oh, that's so good. Particularly the is it the puma head with the knife through it? Yep. Yeah. Um, the eight year that was from that question about that. <laughs> that was from that exhibition. Oh, was it? Right, yeah, okay. yeah. But that's to me like it's you, you got to you kind of go where you feel at the time, which is which is why you're so fascinating to sort of watch. I think that's been pretty much like the um, driving thing behind my career progression is that I was never trained in what I'm doing now. And I was I was actually going to an American international school. There wasn't much guidance about Australian education. So I didn't even know there were things like TAFE, for example, right. um, that were available to me that I could study to be a graphic designer or more of a hands-on thing. All I thought was, oh, creative people go to art school. So that's how I ended up in art school. But there wasn't much guidance about like, here are all these options for you. So, but, so that was kind of frustrating, but then also that meant I never had boundaries because I was mm. just like, I'm just going to do whatever because no one said I couldn't. No one said I could, but I'll just do it. Yeah. And so from the very beginning, I just pursued what happened to appeal to me at the time. And at first I kind of thought it might have been like a sign that I couldn't focus or there was something wrong with me or I, I couldn't. Everyone seemed to be funneling into one type of, Thing. like mm. I want to be a painter or like I want to be even at art school which is a pretty liberal place I still just felt like oh I love photography but I want to do printmaking but I like sculpture but I want to do craft like so 
I just rather than I just kind of thought, oh, okay, well, there must be something wrong with me then, but I'll just keep doing it because it feels really good. <laughs> and so I just yeah. pursued all these paths. And so I pivoted a lot throughout that early time and I still kind of do. But then I realized I read a couple of books and listened to a few podcasts on or TED Talks on the subject that it's actually a personality type. It's quite a rare one. This is multi-potentialities. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's it's the kind of person that thrives off being a jack of all trades and I won't add master of none to that because they seem to be they want to be the master of all the different trades that they kind of choose mm. to pursue and that's kind of I was like wow that is me mm. I I don't like I, I want to be excellent at everything but I don't want to just choose one I want to choose many things and so once I realized that it wasn't like I was a big fuck up or something <laughs> I was like great well I'm gonna just do it yeah. to the full extent then and so now every time something new comes along, I will just pivot slightly and pursue it. Not leave the other stuff behind necessarily unless it's had its time, but mm. add, like add on something else. It sounds yeah. like a real light bulb moment. Yeah, I think it Sometimes was. Sometimes it takes it, your society takes a little bit of time to catch up with all of the individuals. Yeah. In it, right? Yeah. Um, I was just curious to ask you about you, you quit your day job. Um, earlier this year, I think, and now and then you went full time. Mm -hmm. How how's it been responding to clients who are bringing you their briefs? So do you ever sort of is it is it difficult to um, adapt your work to someone else's vision, or are they bringing a brief to you with your work in mind? A lot of them have seen something I've done before and are looking for something similar to that, but sort of tailored a little more to their campaign or brief or whatever it is. I have a base of which to then leap off of with some new ideas on how to tweak it a little bit for them mm. some people come to me just with with an object in mind like oh or like we need a window display created for christmas and so then i'm like okay well you know here are all the things that i can make how about we do this this and this so i can actually kind of conjure it up and be a bit more curatorial about it um, but i don't mind either like i, I like both sometimes i actually prefer to have, um, especially now having to, it being a sole source of income, I need to just be taking on lots of different kinds of jobs. So sometimes if I get a whole bunch of those where the brief is already kind of set from a previous thing I've done and I just have to tweak it, that's great because I can just sort of churn those out and then there's time left over for like those ones where it's more of like an artistic process. And yeah. now that you've made that, that leap, is there anything that you'd do differently or that you'd tell someone who was thinking of doing the same going out on their own? Well, I'm actually going to like full just blow your minds here because I have actually <laughs> just started working a casual job again. Oh, really? Because I, so I've had stints of full freelance before, but they were in Sydney or in the, the circumstances are always so different. It's hard to like kind of compare them to each other. This time, I think like it, it was very hard. I just, I don't know. I think I've never been as developed as, in my brand or in my business as I am now. So I feel like I've kind of got what I'm doing like down pat and like my package that I can offer people is pretty solid now. But it sort of was really interesting because I don't know whether it was the climate in design at the time, you know, like the trends changing, just the availability of work, um, my self promo getting to the right people or not. It just, the work just wasn't coming in as regularly as I needed to to make it a full-time thing. And I realized most of my time had now turned to stressing about where money was gonna come from. Right, yeah. And that I had spent maybe like, the first part of the year was great because I had a whole bunch of work lined up from Christmas spilling over 
into the new year and then I had my book project but then when that like kind of the dust settled on that yeah this I sort of things started to slow down and I do always notice a slowdown in the middle of the year but I've always had a day job so I never really had to like it didn't affect me because yep. it was just like oh cool okay it's fine there's still money coming in so it, I noticed it was much more keenly than I had before I realized that I hadn't made anything new for like a couple of months because all my time was spent doing like business admin and like self-promotion and that's that's kind of a vicious cycle in itself because yeah. you get stressed because you are like oh my god the next job's never going to come in I'll never have get work again you know that yeah. freelance thing where you're like and then it just comes along and all of a sudden you're super busy it's just so random mm. but when I get stressed about things I can't make new stuff right. it's so my creativity is directly linked to like my set my well-being unfortunately yeah. um i wish i could be one of those tortured artists that like thrived off torture <laughs> and like drama but no i can't yeah. um so then in order to get new work you have to be making and generating fresh new things for people to see but then you can't generate new stuff for people to see if you're stressed but mm. you're stressed because you don't have work so it's like a strange yeah, cycle so yeah in the end i realized that time was lap like elapsing to and i was kind of plateauing away from this fresh, empowered, inspired self that I was when I first started freelancing in the year. So I just thought I need to get just something that I, even if it's just like two days a week, brainless, something that I can just go to do, doesn't take too much time away from my stuff, just so that I can get past this dry spell mm. and start to create again, because that's what I know is going to get me new work. So I got this job at a vintage store. And I, I love vintage clothing, so it's perfect. And I actually love talking, as you could probably have known <laughs> now. And I've spent so much, like the whole year in my studio alone in this bubble, not talking to anyone. So it was like the perfect job for me. Yeah. Mm. I walk in, just talk everyone's ears off, dress up in vintage clothes all day and then leave. And then I spend the rest of the week doing my thing. And it was actually so liberating for me because I it just, it was like something freed up in me mm. and I could then I, I, that stress about money wasn't an issue anymore and I could then just work and make things. And then typically I got so much freelance work <laughs> yeah. as soon as I got that job. But yeah, so I, I'd like really want to tell people that day jobs are not anything to be ashamed of because I definitely felt the need to just keep it, you know, not a secret, but like not tell anyone that mm. I worked in a shop or whatever. But, you know, like it doesn't devalue who I am as an artist and what, what I've you do, achieved yeah. and what I do. Like I can still do all those things. It's just for me personally, like takes the stress off, but everyone's different, I guess. Yeah. You've spoken a bit before about um, how important it is that you have a space that's both inspiring and kind of your space and creating that space. How, how do you go about that? Because do you still work in a studio? Or? Yeah. So I have a studio which I share with um, another artist, Spencer Harrison, who we had a studio together um, pre for the last three years in a different building and have just moved out into our own little space. The space itself needs to have really natural, I'm quite strict, so it needs to have <laughs> really natu beautiful natural light. Yep. I can't feel like I'm in a dungeon because my work is colorful. It needs to like have light. Yeah. Um, it needs to be cozy and warm because if I'm uncomfortable, like I can't, I don't want to spend time in there. Mm. And it needs to just be filled with stimulating visual things everywhere. So that mean, that could get quite messy and overwhelming sometimes. <laughs> uh, and also needs to have plants in it. Yeah. So that's what creates the ideal setting for me. But then I have also at home like a little, I'm really lucky. I live in a two bedroom place with my partner and we have a spare room, which I've taken. Right. Um, he's got a garage. I've got, he's got a studio in the garage and yeah. I've got um, 
the spare room, which is like my sort of zen area where I will stay if I want to do writing, like when I was writing my book mm -hmm. or if I'm writing um, blog posts or DIY content or something, I'll stay home and do it in there. And it's just set up with just a little desk and it, it's got like, like an aromatherapy diffuser and all these plants and it gets beautiful morning light. So I'll go in there in the morning, do my meditation. And then, you know, I do like that um, artist pages thing that oh, yeah. from the, yeah, the artist book, way. The artist yeah. way. I like religiously do that every morning. Wow, how long have you done that for? Um, for about a year and a half. Wow, that's really good. And it's so helpful, mm. um, especially during the stressful times of like freelance ups and downs. Can I inquire as to what The Artist's Way is about? It's a, a seminal book for an artist, really. It's, um, it, well, when did it come out? In the 70s? Yeah, I think so. It's been, it's been out for a while. But the, the pages is, is um, you get up when your mind is fresh and you basically write and you write as, as long as you can, really. Mm. And just this idea of kind of purging everything. So you start the day fresh. But then from that, you also get really um, keen insights into what you're really thinking. So yeah. you're writing, it's, it's like uh, journaling? or It's sort of like sometimes it seems like a dear diary because like that's <laughs> how I wake up feeling like I need to like confess something to my diary. Right. Or sometimes it's just rambling or just I, sometimes I write down my dreams because it's right after I get up. So I write down the dreams and then I kind of think about what those might mean. And yeah, or, and then it just sort of, it can like kind of go off into a tangent. So whatever your mm. mind just wants to do, I let it be real, whatever yeah. I'm thinking at the time. And you I've had keep, some... keep the pen really going. Like yeah. You, you don't sit and contemplate, you sort of keep writing. Yeah, so yeah. And I've... Stream of consciousness. Yeah, exactly, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And um, I've had some really interesting, like, whoa, that's like... Well, I'm like, I never realized that about myself or like, that's why I'm such a mm. freak or like, I don't know, you know, <laughs> just, you know, just some epiphany type situations. And then that room is so purposefully made for like quiet time writing, mm. um, that kind of thing. And like my cat comes in and hangs out. So that's a real Zen kind of creative space. Mm. And then there's a studio which can get more chaotic and, but I can leave that mess there. Yeah. And now yeah. I can come home and have this like quiet space to do stuff. Yeah. Mm. You also spoke about um, curating, and I guess I'll, the question I had is, how important is it for artists to be good curators as well? Um, I don't necessarily think that it is crucial, but I do think designers need to have a good eye. So I guess that is mm. a curatorial kind of eye in a way, because you need to be able to look at your work or your, your body of work if you're an exhibiting artist for example and creating a full sort of exhibition or even just like when it comes to making a portfolio and trying to pick which yep. works to go in and out you do need to have that sort of ability to step back or step out and view things from like a top level in order to be able to get perspective on the message you're trying to communicate mm. so but i think a, a lot of the time it comes naturally with time or with experience or just you you do have artists do have a natural kind of curatorial sense because yeah. they've tried they through experimentation through actually making figuring out what works what doesn't but also you have to know what you're trying to communicate or trying to achieve like let's just say you're doing your portfolio you have to know okay these are the types of jobs i really want to be going for right now so your curatorial mind will then be like okay i might just leave out this yep. sort of side of my work because I'm trying to focus on this right now. But you have to just be able to be like adaptable depending on what it is you're trying to get. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does perfectly. Yeah. So it, I guess it is important, but I don't think people need to worry if they're not like amazing curators or mm. unless you want to be a curator. 
which case you should probably learn how to be one. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. That kind of brings us to the end. So cool. if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Well, I guess I... Buy the book. Buy my book. I'm having a lot of book launches around Australia, so mm -hmm. keep an eye out for those. Um, Instagram's probably like the place where I update most regularly, so that's at Kitty Pulaskis. And then there's my website, kittypulaskis.com. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was really fun. <laughs>